Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hmm. I might go see Eye in the Sky tonight. That looks pretty good. Eye in the Sky? Good? The only thing that's more laughable than that is Helen Mirren's tired, shop-worn performance. As Colonel Catherine Powell, she makes me want to puke up my Cap'n Elwood Crunch. See, I didn't know Captain Crunch had a first name. Speaking of food, maybe I'll grab a bite first at this new place, uh, Capo Capo. The kale and cauliflower macaroni and cheese at Capo Capo is the foulest thing I've ever eaten, and I've eaten insect dung. If Colonel Catherine Powell cared about food, ambiance, or service, she'd call in a massive drone strike on this hideous joint and drown anything that was left in a puddle of fetid standing water. Jonathan, where is that voice coming from? Oh, I subscribe to Grim Expectations. It's a voice-activated app that gives you unrealistically bad scenarios for anything you might consider doing. Even if somebody proposed making Tom Brady head of the World Bank, Grim Expectations would still be the dumbest idea of 2016. This lame brain gimmick will have the lifespan of a gerbil with malaria. See? It even hates itself. I don't get the point of it. Well, I, I find it almost impossible to enjoy anything that's been hyped up by critics or the people around me. But when I've been told something is really loathsome, it's almost always a little more fun than I expected it to be. So I'm basically paying $7.99 a month to improve all my experiences. But that's just your opinion, man, which couldn't be more worthless if it was pegged to the Tanzanian shilling. You're about as empty-headed as this overrated, warmed-over, obscene, contemptible mockery of a radio show. And if this guy was any more of a bird brain, you'd be throwing suet and sunflower seeds at Colin McEnroe. All right, so uh, that is, in fact, one way to make sure you enjoy things more than you might have been conditioned to enjoy them, is to, in fact, just be told that they're going to be terrible. Uh, I think we've all had that experience anyway, and we've all had the opposite experience. We'll be discussing that here in the first segment as we talk about the impact of negative reviews and and, and sort of how it kind of resets things and, and doesn't necessarily have the effect that people think it does, which is... Uh, that of suppressing box office sales, although maybe it can. Anyway, that's what discussions are for. Uh, a little bit later in the show, we'll also be talking about the controversy over a casting call for the, mu- uh, mu- the musical Hamilton on Broadway, uh, in which uh, non-white actors were invited to apply, uh, to apply, and therefore white actors were not. Uh, and then finally, Susan Sarandon's uh, somewhat controversial interview on Monday night on MSNBC with Chris Hayes, uh, in which she suggested that people who support Bernie Sanders might not support uh, Hillary Clinton and might support Donald Trump. And maybe she she suggested more than that, too. We'll uh, debate that as we go. Uh, But right now, I've got to introduce the panel. Uh, He's an associate professor of history at Trinity College, and uh, Rotten Tomatoes gives his work as a DJ uh, 67% and calls it riveting and eclectic. Uh, and that would be Luis Figueroa. James Hanley is the co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College, which, which TripAdvisor calls a must-see when in Hartford uh, gives it a five-star rating. And Carolyn Payne, well, I mean, just reviewing Carolyn Payne would take all day. Uh, she's an actress, comedian, dancer, founder, and director and choreographer of Kinetic Dance, uh, and a Metacritic just sums her up as fabulous. Um, so uh, they've all gotten great reviews, no negative reviews at all, and this show is going to get great reviews too. Our, this is the vastly improved nose, by the way. Jonathan McPants now produces the nose. We fired the person who was producing it previously because he wasn't doing a good job. 
That was me. Um, so, um, and, and we're having great results here. So we're going to begin with this notion of we're going to use Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice as kind of a case in point. Not to be about the movie because most of us have not even seen the movie for reasons that will now become apparent, I think. Uh, but, of course, it's the second film in the DC Extended Universe uh, after Zach's, director Zack Snyder's Man of Steel. Um, it got terrible reviews. Uh, Variety writes, in the days leading up to its release this weekend, major critics tried to outdo each other by cooking up the most devastating ways to dismiss Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, as creatively bankrupt, corporately mandated cash grab, searching fruitlessly for a coherent plot. The New York Times' A.O. Scott quipped that getting brained by a porcelain sink which I believe does happen in the movie, uh, was more diverting than Batman versus Superman and so forth. And, of course, uh, that was total box office kryptonite, right? Wrong. It smashed all kinds of records, $424 million globally. Domestically, it's about $170 million. The next closest thing, I think, is Zootopia with $24 million, just to give you a sense of scale. So that's not what reviews do, at least not in a situation like that. So I guess the first question, we have a couple of questions today, but James, maybe we'll begin. You're in the business. You watch how this whole thing works. I mean, how do you, as somebody who selects and shows movies and deals with the expectations and information carted into your movie theater by the people who buy tickets, uh, how do you view the, the, the what, the, the synergy between, if there is any, between reviews and actually going to movies? It's a really difficult question for me because I, I personally, I like to not read reviews and go and see a film. And uh, one of my greatest pleasures is the fun of going to see something I really don't know anything about. And even if I don't like it, it's something that's a discovery, uh, even in the not liking it. I find that um, over the years I've paid less and less attention to the idea that, you know, I would check on reviews. But, of course, running a theater, then you also have to think that, well, many people do read reviews and they want recommendations. And I can't tell you the number of times when we've had actual phone calls from people who essentially want to be assured, is this a five-star experience <laughs> that, you know, we really are not wasting our time and you really guarantee this, right? Mm -hmm. And I can't and I won't. And I, I try and get people into the place where they can say, well, you know, explore this and at least come to a theater where it's a good experience. Even if you didn't like the movie, you've actually, you know, not felt that you were having a horrible experience in every way, that the theater itself was a pleasant place to come and meet friends and actually see the film and then make your own judgment. But I think there's also this whole Batman versus Superman thing is much linked to the sort of split that lies in the film industry and in cinema generally and the art of cinema, which is that the commercial side of exploitation really has a totally different set of rules from the actual sort of the, the the artistic side of somebody making a film without necessarily regard for its massive box office potential. And the problem is that the critical reception in advance doesn't really make that distinction. And so critics act like, you know, they're, they're having a critical um, moment with a film like Batman versus Superman that's as relevant as, say, um, coming, to, coming to see something uh, that, that is you know, considered out there, something unusual, something a new filmmaker perhaps that there is no experience of and there isn't that distinction. So for us, running, making a decision um, as to what film 
you want to show, the main bottom line, I would say, is integrity and feel that you're getting something that you want people to see. And you might actually encourage the person who is aghast at the thought of Batman and say, well, you know, give this a try if it's a good film. Um, like The Dark Knight, for example, I'd convinced a lot of people to see, I think, because they, they initially thought, no, they never, ever, ever set foot in a theater showing Batman. But th these are things that, um, you know, many people want much more of a sort of definite reassurance, I think, that uh, given the tightness of their time, they want to be sure in advance, which I think is a problem. Carolyn, well, Carolyn was the same way about Knights of Rodin. <laughs> she just wasn't going to see that. And then she went, she cried. Um, yeah, so what were, you, what were you going to well, say? Well, I, I was going to say that I, I think that for me, movie reviews... There's two different kinds of movies that I'm going to be paying attention to the reviews for differently here. If it is kind of a more art house, intellectual film that could be a harder pill to swallow, I want a good review before I'm going to invest in, in that. If it's something that's, you know, not fluffy. But if it's a fluffier movie or an action movie and the review is bad, I actually may be more likely to go see that because I enjoy a good train wreck. So, <laughs> you know, or maybe not see it in the theater, but definitely get it on demand when it's on my, you know, when it's on TV and I can sit in the privacy of my home and mock it. Um, but for for reviews, when it comes to reviews in general, I, I think it's it's a funny thing that the Internet especially has led us all to become we're all critics and everyone's quick to post their reviews and um I recently went on a vacation to Jamaica and we had done one of those deal of fortune things to and when we got told what our hotel was we immediately took to TripAdvisor saw what it was read these horrible reviews and immediately spent another $1000 to change to a different hotel after getting this amazing deal so it ended up costing us like double but it was worth it because according to TripAdvisor we would have never enjoyed our vacation in that other hotel and I, I, but it was still crazy to me that I let reviews, I mean, and these were several bad reviews, but that I let reviews totally dictate that I decided that $1,000 meant nothing and these reviews meant everything. Well, Luis, it seems as though, I mean, some, some we, we kind of have to divide this experience up a little bit, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, there, first of all, for something like a Batman versus Superman movie, there are people who are going to go see it no matter what gets said about it, mm -hmm. no matter what happens, no matter what dissuasions are mounted by A.O. Scott or David Edelstein or whoever. They're going to go see that movie. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there are also people, as James who would suggest, who would never go see that mm -hmm. movie. You're not going to get Carolyn to go see Knights of Rodanth or some Nicholas. Nope. Sparks movie or something like that. <laughs> That's just not going to happen. So there are people who've already kind of picked their sides for right. certain kinds of movies. But then the vast majority of movies do lie in this middle ground where we're looking for some kind of guidance or, you know, do I go see this new uh, Sally Field movie? Hello, my name is Doris. Do I wait for it on video? Do I never see it? And and I, I do think there's some place anyway for all these reviews. Uh, yes, and, and one of the things that happened in, uh, especially I would say like the not ex not exactly the beginning of the internet, but more the second half since the invention of the internet. Um, the first thing was when IMDb uh, came up, it became the site for a lot of people to go and post comments, read uh, blurbs from reviews or links to reviews and things like that, searching for that, um, in part because uh, the movie tickets and the, cons the things that you buy in the concession store 
became so expensive. I think one of the reasons why a lot of people became more uh, shy or sort of like uh, had trepidation about going to movies that they would not be sure by, by someone that they were good is that the cost of going to the movies became so prohibited by so many people, for so many people really in society. Um, now we have the mobile apps like Flickster, um, and you know before that also now we have the Rotten Tomatoes and so on that, that allowed to that. But if, you know, here as a historian, if I could just backtrack a little bit and look at a bigger picture, there are um, a couple of things that I'd like to point out in support to what's been said, um, expand on this, is that a lot of these franchise films are made not just for the American market, but because they sell far better overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, and the biggest market uh, in terms of population and so in Asia, and you know. So that is a lot of, I, I don't have it on my fingertips right now, but a great deal of the main Hollywood studios' income comes from uh, what they make overseas. And overseas action movies are a favorite of many, many crowds by the millions. Um, so that's one thing. But it, but if you think about it, too, it goes back to the beginnings of Hollywood um, or the film industry where Nickelodeons and early short films, a lot of them were really franchises. The, the notion that film was not a franchise until recently is also um, something that I would suggest people re-examine um, compared to the beliefs that we have now. Personally, I'm totally with James. I do not like to read uh, film reviews. In fact, I do not like to watch the previews. When I go to the cinema, I uh, close my eyes and put my <laughs> fingers on my ears so I would not even hear. Because um, trailers, James knows this even better than I do, trailers today tell you the whole story. Mm-hmm. So I hate the trailers too. So well, there's, there's all kinds of things that are going on here and that, that happen, James. And, and sometimes people have gone from maybe or maybe not reading reviews to simply glancing at a score, right? You go on Rotten Tomatoes, you can yeah. see that yeah. Rotten Tomatoes has made some kind of effort to distill all the reviews that they can find uh, into uh, this numerical precipitate. You know, so if it's a tw- and, and people are busy or they think they're busy. Uh, and you, on Rotten Tomatoes, you get not only the critic score, but the user score. Uh, Batman, uh, the new Batman versus Superman, just to put it in perspective, is I think about a 28% uh, for critics and about a 71 for just general audiences. Um, but so, so people look at that kind of stuff. And in some ways, you can't entirely blame them. It, it's, or maybe you can. But well, I mean. I, I, I think you can, actually, because okay. I think that in that case, what, what has happened now is this business of assurance. If I think of a film like Harold and Maud, for example, that when it came out um, in the 70s was excoriated by reviewers and it was thrown out by its own distributor who was ashamed to be running a film about uh, an 80-year-old woman in love with a teenager and that this was a horrible, you know, everything that, everything that was wrong with the film industry at the time. And we picked it up at Sydney Studio and we showed it. And, well, the rest is history. I mean, a, a lot of art theaters picked it up and it became a huge success. And people came. They had no idea what Harold and Maud was about. All they knew was that some people like us were saying, don't get hung up on this condemnation of this film. Uh, it's something different. Really to me, that's sort of that's moral and, condemnation. That wasn't necessarily a critical assessment. Oh, that it was, was a critical assessment, too. That yeah. had, that, that, there was a moral thing behind it. I agree at that time, you know, that was 
particularly tiresome aspect of it. But there was also the fact that um, you. Uh, what I'm getting to is the idea that there were a lot of people who were willing to take a chance. A lot of people took a chance on David Lynch, for example. I mean, uh, yes, they, they, they came to David Lynch mm -hmm. films and they never understood them. They came to Ingrid, Ingmar Bergman films. Mm -hmm. They came and, and, and watched Persona and were riveted, but they didn't know why. And they came out and they were they were stimulated by something totally unfamiliar mm -hmm. that they didn't think had a message, but maybe it did and maybe they were missing it. Mm -hmm. And now, I think because of the vast number of sources of these numeric ratings, I mean, for heaven's sake, you can, it, it, when you're picking up uh, any product on the internet, you can go and look at star ratings, you know, mm -hmm. people who've written in stuff like that. And I know from my own purchases how incredibly inaccurate those <laughs> things can be and how they're obvious plants, you know. I mean, now oh, yeah. I never trust but these let me, things. Let me just bring up a counter argument, James, and that is this. I mean, life is finite. Life is short. There's a lot of movies out. There's a lot of everything out there. So we now know, it's almost now a rule, any musician who had a career longer than 10 years will get a biopic. Right now, there's a biopic out about but Hank Williams, and there's a biopic uh, out uh, about Miles Davis. Uh, Don Cheadle's playing Miles Davis. Tom Hiddleston is playing Hank Williams. One, the, the Hank Williams movie is getting terrible reviews. Terrible reviews and a really no, no, low number on Rotten Tomatoes. The Miles Davis movie, good reviews, good uh, number on Rotten Tomatoes. My, if my life is short, my time is finite. What's wrong with me looking at that and going, well, you know, I can't see every single movie. Well, I think I me, might go see me, the, I, the Miles I, Davis movie. For me, I would look at that and I'd say, I, I really want to see both those movies. <laughs> I really do. I mean, I know yeah. I'm a movie fanatic, but I yeah. really would. Yeah. I mean, I, I would feel when people go crazy to say something is really bad, I agree with Carol. And that's kind of like a hook to me. Yeah. That's saying, wait a minute, that why are they so angry about this movie? You know, why are they saying it's such... A, a totally useless movie that maybe there's something there. It makes me curious about stuff and and I think that the idea of somehow going to see uh, stuff, the film industry is such that half of what is produced is purely commercial exploitation. I don't know, roughly half perhaps. But uh, th what that means is if you go and see films without critical advanced knowledge or lots of awareness about the film, you're going to see some bad movies. You're going mm -hmm. to see some pure exploitation. Mm -hmm. But you also might come up and suddenly see something that really you didn't expect that was a real discovery. Yeah. Um, well, you know, and, and Carol, to that point, uh, I totally get what you're saying, too, about how sometimes it's fun to watch something that's not very good mm -hmm. uh, if you're in the proper state of mind. And there's also the notion, I mean, now I'll double down on what James said instead of disagreeing with him. Some movies age remarkably well. And so Jonathan, who's been uh, try, trying to orient me here, is pointing out that right now Batman versus Superman has essentially the same tomato-mometer, if that's how you say it. Tomometer? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes uh, critics rating as Ishtar, which is often held up as like this oh. gold standard of a bad movie. Yes. Except that, you know what? I don't think Ishtar's... <laughs> I think Ishtar, you know, when it first came out and it's Warren Beatty and you were just a child. You don't remember. I've never heard I remember the Ishtar. I remember the Ishtar debacle. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It was, it's really sort of held up as one of these great Hollywood studio mistakes. It's Warren Beatty. It's Dustin Hoffman. Uh, it's a kind of um, Hope and Crosby road movie kind of thing. Except that, I mean, a lot of movies, if you watch them, I don't know, 10 years after they've been pronounced completely terrible, are kind of interesting to watch, you know, because partly because you've already been warned. It's kind of what we were doing in the intro. You've been inoculated against expectations. Right. So then 
you know, you'll get in there and you have such low expectations that even just those glimmers, you're like, all right, this wasn't so bad. Right, you can go hi- hunting in the pile of dung yeah. for the little gold <laughs> ring that's in there. Somewhere. Yeah. Well, I, I <laughs> when you phrase it that way. I mean, yeah. I, mean I just want to, if I could jump in and come back for a second to the comment uh, moments earlier when Cody was trying to challenge um, something from uh, from James. Um uh, you know, the issue of you have limited amount of time, mm-hmm. and so you cannot go watch it. So you want someone to, to make, you know, do the recommendations for you. I got to watch all the Daredevil episodes on Netflix. I'm busy. <laughs> well, part of it is that our society today is so overworked. Um, it's so overwhelmed with information. Um, our jobs are different now. We can be contacted by people um, from our job anytime, 24-7 that people feel pressure to 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 have someone sift for them this barrage of information at the same time that we have so much limited amount of available time for leisure compared to what it used to be i but mean the see, pace of our that's... the pace of our lives is so ridiculous now and so that's part of the pressure i think also why a lot of these apps are so popular um, you know, like Yelp, for example, why, why were so many people like Yelp? Why not experiment? Just walk down some street in Manhattan and try to figure out whether on 8th Avenue you run into a good place. No, you got to Yelp it and whatever. And I, I, I do that, too. It's, a, it's a, The society, I think, sped up enormously in the last few And the question the is whether that, whether that is valuable. I mean, I've walked past the, um, uh, the, the classroom where a student is watching Citizen Kane at double speed. And, um, you know, like, like, okay, you're so busy, you've got so much to do. And so, I, I mean, I would say, okay, why bother, really, except that you could tell your teacher, well, yeah, I saw it. And it wasn't such a great film, but, you know, okay. But, I mean, I think of things like, for instance, what would have happened? Uh, I, I agree to an extent about people feeling busy and overworked and stuff like that. What it is is there's so much more input of information, but I think that that causes me to want to sort of, you know, make my own choices about things that will actually be stimulating. I still remember very well when Bonnie and Clyde came out. That was a film that the American critics jumped all over, much as much in the same language as is used about Batman versus Superman, and it was absolutely excoriated. It opens in Europe. And it's greeted as the greatest American film to appear in decades, mm. that this is the expression of, 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 of American art and everything superlative. A week later, the New York's film critics are suddenly having sort of addenda to their reviews and say, well, maybe, you know, sort of like uh, maybe there's something there. Um, but when I first heard about that film, I wanted to see it, and I wanted to spend the time to see it. And yes, there's lots more stuff to see, and you realize you're not going to see it all. But the question is, how do you make the choice? And you make the choice, I think, by you know thinking, well, okay, I, I'm interested in this filmmaker, or I'm interested in actually how the, maybe the writer or something like that that's drawing me in. But see, I think we still judge, getting back to what Louise said about choosing with that we're so busy with this time I think it also comes down to like we judge things on Netflix totally differently things that you sit around and watch and are willing to invest your time in on Netflix you would never go to a movie theater and and if you did you you would be ashamed of yourself for spending the money and the time to do that but Netflix we don't I mean hardly anyone ever is like oh well this has four stars on Netflix I'm gonna watch it oh, no I do that really I, I do that yeah, yeah. hey See, uh, before, before we run out of time here we have two more topics to true. get to in there's a corollary to this topic. And so, Carolyn, uh, because you're uh, the 
person who brought this up, you can uh, introduce it sort of. But I, I will say, uh, speaking of big box office, 20.7 million people have now watched a video of Ben Affleck and Henry Cavill, the two stars of this movie we're talking about, <laughs> on one stop of this mammoth press tour they were doing. And an interview, whom you can't see, asked them about the really, really bad reviews. Henry Cavill, the guy playing Superman, launches into a defense of the franchise. Uh, meanwhile, the camera begins to zoom slowly, slowly in on Ben Affleck, who looks so sad, while Simon and Garfunkel's The Sounds of Silence play. If you haven't watched this video uh, and you're not a terribly nice person, uh, you should watch it because you really enjoy it. It's incredibly <laughs> mean. But um, So, I, first of all, um, maybe you could talk about the power of the meme, and then we could talk also very quickly about why would Ben Affleck be so sad? Why is he so Don't be sad, Ben Affleck. I saw true self-loathing sadness in his <laughs> eyes in this video, and I loved it. He just, Ben Affleck checked out. You know, the, Henry, he's there trying to explain why everyone should see this. And meanwhile, Ben Affleck just is done. And and I loved, I think it was the Huffington Post, to find this as the exact moment that Ben Affleck realized his movie sucked, too. It, it's, <laughs> it, it's sort of, it's a companion to Chris Christie's stare when he's looking at Donald Trump. At that, you know, it's like the, the two great sort of... Edward Munch moments so far of 2016, uh, we've already had them. But so, James, there's really, you know, from the point of view of the industry, which you study quite carefully, there's there's a reason for all this. I mean, he's not just thinking, I made a crappy movie. There's, it's That's more right. than that. Uh, that's right. And the parallel with Chris Christie is continues because it's a question <laughs> of what you want. You know, it's like, what and do you, you what do you also want? And essentially, if you're Ben Affleck and you want to do other things which other people don't want to pay for, then you you have to accept that if you've got this offer to be paid all of this money to be in a movie that you don't particularly care for or you think is a you know just a, a throwaway franchise, you are getting something out of it. And so he's going to be able to make money that he puts into something else. And and so he's willing to do that. And I think that being having to go on these press tours is an uncomfortable reminder for people in that sort of situation. And it's a direct parallel with Chris Christie that the price of doing this was appearing on TV and being identified and actually having to eat it. Well, because there's a, there's a disadvantage in that situation from someone who has to do the horse trading yeah. uh, publicly, a politician yeah. or an actor, you know, a singer or whatever, musician, from people who are behind the camera in filmmaking. Right. right? Well, so, well, for example, John Sales, who, you know, yeah. uh, I, I admire. You brought it to the studio a couple of years ago, like four years ago for D'Amigo. Uh, John Sales does his films. A lot of the films that he makes, he finances right. because behind the scenes, he is a script doctor. Right. And he has uh, massaged a, m a lot of films in Hollywood that he would never want to uh, be associated with. Right. And yeah. he has confessed that. that, you know, we, that we, need, we sort of need to wrap up this segment here just so we'll have time for uh, Hamilton and for Susan Sarandon. <laughs> um, but I will quickly say that I'm thrown back, James, to um, the Klaus von Bülow movie where Ron Silver plays Alan Dershowitz. And if you recall, <laughs> uh, he's constantly saying that the only reason he's doing this is because these two poor black kids in South South Carolina that he and it's he brings it up so much that you realize he's completely mortgaged his soul. Yeah, uh, Alan, exactly. uh, Alan yeah. Dershowitz. Right. He's now enthusiastically defending Klaus von Bülow so that he can get money for these two poor black kids in South right. Carolina. All right, we've got to take a quick break. We'll be back with Hamilton and Susan Sarandon, but not together. Reversal of fortune. Faster than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. 
Batman, you really can drop those villains. Oh, thanks, Supes. Now watch me drop the beat. I may not live to see our glory. I may not live to see our glory. But I will gladly join the fight. But I will gladly join their fight. And when our children tell our story. And when, when our children tell our story. They'll tell the story of tonight. Let's have another round tonight. Let's have another round tonight. Let's have another round tonight. Raise a glass to freedom. Something that, as you may be able to guess, is from the hit musical Hamilton. We've been talking about uh, bad reviews and good box office. Well, Hamilton has good reviews, ecstatic reviews. that You couldn't get better reviews and you couldn't get better box office either. It's almost impossible to get a ticket. So what could possibly go wrong? This is the most incredible success story in popular culture in America over the last two years by far. Well, guess what? A casting call seeking, quote, non-white men and women uh, went out uh, for auditions for the show. The show is going to need to replace some of its uh, actors presumably uh, heading into the summer and out. That's when people often leave and go on to other projects. Plus, they're going to have to take the show. They're going to want to take the show uh, on the road or develop a Chicago uh, version or or something. So they need new people. They asked for non-white men and women. And Carolyn, you're uh, somebody who, uh, because of your career, pays a lot of attention to this and uh, and to the chatter that goes on. Maybe you can give us kind of a sense of what the chatter has been like. Well, I became aware of of this casting notice because people started posting about it. Obviously, a lot of actor friends who were posting when this kind of it people had taken to Twitter to say, "How dare they call in non-whites only?" And I, I just I had started laughing because there are castings every day are calling for specific things. Like I go through hundreds of casting notices a day and look at them and I, they, they want a brunette. They want somebody tall. They want somebody who's a real runner. They want, you know, they, they're all specific and that is the prerogative of casting. And for this show, which has offered so many jobs to actors, who, for to diverse actors, because yes, there are less jobs out there for diverse actors. There are less jobs for women. And this and this show has offered amazing opportunities, and then now they're being taken down because they were calling specifically for non-white actors, when there are castings that say all roles are for Caucasians, and that this is being, and this is the one. So I think that it's the right battle, but it's the wrong, the wrong one to set it off from, in my opinion. <laughs> Um, well, today I will do something that I don't think I've ever done either in public or in private. Are you going to sing? Um, I'm going to endorse an editorial <laughs> from the New York Post of all places um, where they said about this, and I'm just going to read a co- you know, couple of sentences. First, not everything is race neutral, especially when you are upending how people look at race, which is uh, the purpose of, of, of the show. Um, and, and they, they said, um, casting white actors might be true truer to story, but it will also be rank censorship and artistic butchery. Um, and that's also, that's precisely along the lines of the producer's statement. When they released a statement a couple of days ago uh, explaining what happened and, and defending their artistic decision um, as legitimate standard practices that are accepted on legal terms, that are accepted in terms of you know standard pro, uh, production practices, the examples that they gave was color purple, um, porgy and bass, um, and so I, I think that there are two different issues that are happening here. Um, I don't want to 
immediately because I don't want to take too much time in this intervention, but I would suggest that there are two things that people are putting together that they should be considered separate, um, two different issues. Um, the, the, the argument that the Post made, that the producers made, and then let's look at what is producing the criticism against the casting call. Well, the most anodyne explanation of this, James, is they just got the wording wrong, right? You know, the, the, the rule generally is you say what the characters are. You say right. the characters are white, yeah. the characters are black, the characters are – so these characters are you – know, you don't say what the actors are. And, and this – I mean, I, I'm sure you've got your own library of examples about this because really you want it to be about performance. I mean, when Jonathan Price, the uh, uh, veteran and esteemed uh, British actor, was cast in the lead role of Miss Saigon, which was supposed to be a Eurasian pimp, there were a lot of people complaining. On the other hand, he gave this tremendous performance. So if, if you can play the role, whatever it is, uh, to me, that's distinct from you – know, I mean, the, the mistake was saying what kind of actor you wanted to see. Well, I think that was, it, it, that was a mistake and they clearly recognized that and seemed to be sort of fearful of like, like legal consequences. Why was it a, why, why, why was it a mistake? Why was it a mistake? Because rather than the, saying that the roles they were looking to fill – were for like to for a black character they just said that they were looking for black actors right it was like an employment notice as opposed to explaining what they were the okay. characters they okay. were looking to fill but one of the interesting things to me about this is what is really at stake is the industry as a whole and the opportunities everywhere and the fact that it's very hard to break into a, a, a sort of lockstep. It's like old. one of the things that's interesting to me is we've been showing over the past few years the British National Theatre live shows from London. And one of the things that's remarkable about the British National Theatre is that they have incredibly diversified from what they were. I mean, 10 years ago, it was uh, almost entirely, uh, you know, British uh, white white British people who were like playing standard roles, sort of expected roles, and you look at their productions now, and they're even doing uh, it, totally. It, 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 the end game of this, in a way, is like uh, what Yale is doing with Cymbeline, mm. uh, is that it's not just racial identity or background or ethnicity, but it's also switching sex roles that you're not trapped by the actual. Uh, text that you're looking at, that you're actually testing something new, that somebody's bringing something something new. And some people get very annoyed about that. But the bottom line seems to me is that in, say, New York theater as a whole, what are the opportunities for people who are not you know, white males, for example, or white females, for that matter, who are who are well known already. What is the opportunity for people coming into the theater? And that is the thing that uh, but, really gets lost. I, in I'm, this. I'm very curious. What you guys think is the are the main reasons that this be, became a controversy? I, what, I, what is the source of the criticism? What is it that the wording of the casting call was wrong because they should have said it's to play these characters as opposed to looking for these actors? Mm -hmm. Or was there something else besides that technical uh, way, you know, the issue of how the casting call wording went out? I, I think that is what it is. That's exactly what it is. And, yeah. and first of all, you know, just a second what James is saying. Uh, yeah, Yale Rep is doing this with Cymbeline right now where the king is being played as a woman. Um, Darko Trushnik just did it in, in Hartford where uh, Juliet and... 
uh, Lord Capulet uh, were African American, uh, and it was sort of not commented on. And Darko also refuses to suggest that it has anything to do with the subtext of what's going on. But so people make all kinds of choices. But I think it's important to separate performance from character. You know, for the the role that Jeffrey Tambor plays, I keep bringing this up on Transparent. It's a it's a transgendered person, right? It's a uh, you know, but and which Jeffrey Tambor is not, but his performance is spectacular. I mean, I think the math is, there's a problem with the math. I was downtown in New York last Saturday. I saw two plays, uh, eight characters in total. Only one of them was a person of color. I suppose there's another one. Maybe not. I don't think so, though. So, and that's kind of the way the math goes. About 80 percent of the roles on Broadway and even at major downtown theaters uh, are white. And so, yeah, that's got to be fixed. That's got to be addressed. But this is a show that is really does offer lots of diversity. So that's why it was almost laughable to me that this became the one that was triggering this conversation, which, like I said, is something that needs to be talked about. But this was not the one, especially when you have, uh, like they were doing castings for uh, Bright Star, Steve Martin's musical, and it clearly stated all roles are for Caucasians. Mm -hmm. And that didn't trigger when that... Well, all roles are Caucasians. I think that's what they said. Uh, Right, yes. (laughs) I I just, I'm bothered by this... Um, um, they, 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 trying to explain it uh, fundamentally just within the narrow context of the casting call and the actors and who can do this performance and whatever. That, I mean, that's great. We, 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 I mean, I'm not saying that that's not important, but I think we should put it in a bigger context, okay? I mean, look, look I, I, one of my favorite books with one of my favorite titles ever for a book was a book that came at the end of the 90s um, by this American studies scholar, Job Litsitz. And the title of the book is The Possessive Investment in Whiteness. And so I think that um, it's along those lines. It's, it's this notion when, when there are certain people well, in this society, that happens to be. In other societies, there are other people who, who, who are possessing an investment in the privilege that they have. Um, I could give you examples from other places that there are other situations. This one here um, is this particular reason that when when some people, quite a few, they see uh, so-called minorities, so-called people of color or whatever we might want to say, occupying positions of power in which they can det- determine policy or decisions like this and so on, and they have become successful, not just as a performer, but as an empresario, because that's what Emmanuel Miranda is as well, then people, people find, and they, people say, oh, they are, they are, they are, they are uh, discriminating against us. There is reverse discrimination. You know, over, well over 50% of the uh, Republicans interviewed in recent polling that I saw, very, very respectable polling organization, uh, over, well over 50% say that, um, white people in this country are now an oppressive uh, group that minorities have these privileges and disadvantages. And, and so when you look at this, this is not surprising that it produces this context that we're living in the so-called post-racial society. It, it produces a phenomenon like Trump. And so I think that is a bigger situation. We do need to wrap this up just so we can uh, finish up our final topic here. Our final topic uh, being uh, Susan Sarandon's appearance on Monday night on MSNBC's Chris Hayes show. Uh, uh, Susan Sarandon is a big-time Bernie Sanders supporter. She's been touring the country uh, on behalf of Bernie Sanders. Um, We're going to play you just a a little bit uh, of the interview between Sarandon and Chris, Chris Hayes. In certain quarters, there's growing concern 
that the folks that are into Bernie Sanders um, have come to despise Hillary Clinton or reject Hillary Clinton, and that should she be the nominee, which is as yet undetermined, they will walk away. That's a legitimate concern because they're very passionate and very principled. And right, but aren't, isn't the isn't the question always in an election about choices, right? I mean, I think a lot of people think to themselves, well, if it's Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, um, and I think Bernie Sanders probably would think. I this. think Bernie would probably encourage people because he doesn't have any ego in this thing. But I think a lot of people are sorry. I just can't bring myself to to do that. How about you personally? I don't know. I'm going to see what happens. Really? Really. I cannot believe that as you're watching the rock. Well, you know, Donald some Trump people feel Donald entity. Trump will bring the revolution immediately. If he gets in, then things will really, you know. Oh, you're explode. saying the, the, the Leninist model of yeah. heighten the contradictions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Some people feel that. Don't you think that's dangerous? I think that what's going on now, if you think that it's pragmatic to shore up the status quo right now, then you're not in touch with the status quo. The status quo is not working. And I think it's dangerous to think that we can continue the way we are with a militarized police force, with privatized prisons, with the death penalty, with a low minimum wage, with threats to women's rights, and think that you can't do something huge to turn that around because the country is, is not in good shape. All right, so the response to that, you boy, you don't want to get Deborah Messing mad at you, uh, but that's what happened. <laughs> Susan Sarandon, uh, uh, she tweeted, Deborah Messing tweeted, Susan Sarandon muses, the Trump presidency would be better for the country than Hillary. Wonder if she'd say that if she were poor, gay, Muslim, Muslim or immigrant. Uh, Susan Sarandon typed back, LOL, uh, that I would ever vote for Trump, and back and forth and back and forth, and Jamie Lee Curtis got involved, and all kinds of uh, people got involved. So, uh, James, w w what do we make of all this? Well, I, you know, <laughs> I am really sort of the, horrified by some of the sort of things that are happening now, the North Carolina in particular, <laughs> and, you know, the, 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 the incredible sort of uh, legitimization of the most obnoxious, violent, and, and, and pernicious elements that somehow are being given legitimacy. And I think that to throw around the idea that somehow, uh, you know, people— uh, who are uh, Bernie Sanders supporters, for example, would would actually switch to Trump. I mean, I think of things. I, I, I sort of have a very sort of visceral sense of fear about a lot of things. That you know, okay. So as a gay man, I'm really excited that the Supreme Court ruled that you know I could marry my husband. That that this would be you know a sort of like like an equality of sorts. But there's also all of this incredible volcanic anger about that very thing out there. And there are actually people running as candidates who are actually setting gasoline on this fire and, and, and using it as levers to get into power. And I think, I mean, I agree with Susan Sarandon on a lot of things when she speaks, but it seems to me that she's in this particular case, she's missing this extraordinary power of chaos that lies in in the direction that she's sort of intimating, and I it it, it bothered me really, and uh, I I just uh, I can't think really. I sort of feel like I want to talk to her and say, "What did you actually mean? I mean, is this to get you in the news? Is this? Are you really thinking about this? Anybody want to stick up for Susan? Uh, <laughs> well, I will. Let me let me. Say. It did not surprise me that she would say that uh, for two reasons, one about her, one broader, because I have a lot of friends uh, in social media, some of whom I friends, you know, in, in real life, others not, um, who are Bernie supporters from a, 
leftist position that is to the left of Bernie Sanders, to the left of Susan Sarandon, as a matter of fact. And they have been saying things like this now for months. So this is, this is a perspective that has been there for a long time, and, and they are advocating it publicly for months since, since, since the summer. Um, now, that perspective and, and what she said is actually has a long history among leftist people, a long yeah. history. And I posted uh, uh, an article that appeared um, um, online this week. I forget now where it was posted. But my comment was um, that I saw the Sosan Serrano interview live, and I was aghast. Hope things get worse, hoping things because they will bring revolution is arrogantly responsible. And as a historian, over well 99% of the time inaccurate. This has led to literally to countless millions of deaths in recorded history. Vote for whoever you want or prefer, but please don't be so smug and ignorant. Okay, I'm going to have to stop you there just because we're almost out of time for this, and I want to get Carolyn in. No, no. Saying that what she said is basically like if somebody said, oh, I'll have a cup of tea. And then if they can't have tea, they're just going to drink gasoline. Like that's pretty much what she's saying is this this jump to here. Uh, I will say yet again, this is another example of Twitter just being amazing and proving that we probably would be better off without it. Not that, you know, I, I think that it's great a great to have a forum where you can say state your opinions but things tend to escalate in a very quick and crazy manner on twitter all right i'll stick up for susan sarandon even though i really don't want to very much although <laughs> i i do think her comments are a little bit have been misinterpreted she's what she's saying is many bernie supporters w- might feel that way um what she said and i watched her thing about two or three times just to kind of get it she, she's basically saying from her point of view um, blocking Trump is not a good enough reason in and of itself to vote for Hillary Clinton. She regards Hillary Clinton as part of an incredibly cynical and destructive status quo. She just basically says it's not a good enough reason. She's very elusive about what she would do under those circumstances. I mean, I, I, I have a real problem. I'm going to vote for Bernie Sanders in the Connecticut primary, but I really do have a problem with the kind of intellectual smugness that I often hear, and I hear it from Sarandon. But she's getting a little tiny bit of a bad rap. I mean, the way she framed it was a, was a little bit different. Uh, uh, anyway, we're going to have to stop it there so we can move on. We'll have time for recommendations at the end. Somebody should make a movie called Rotten Tomatoes just to see what its Rotten Tomatoes rating is. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McNichol and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Benjamin Esty. The part of Bill Curry was played by Deborah Messing. For show pages, articles, and videos of the staff of Here and Now auditioning for Hamilton, go to our website, wnpr.org. On Monday's show, polling, why it works and why it doesn't. And now, back to Colin. All right, we've just got a few minutes here for recommendations. Carolyn Payne, what will you recommend? All right, I am going to uh, endorse myself. I'm doing uh, stand-up tomorrow night at the Hardcore uh, Comedy Show. It's out in Torrington at Hardcore Cupcakes. So there's cupcakes, there's comedy, there's me, and it's BYOB, <laughs> so you really can't lose. Uh, 
So that's uh, that's tomorrow night at uh, 8 p.m. at Hardcore Cupcakes. All right. So Rotten Tomatoes gives out an 89%. Uh, James, what have you got for us? <laughs> Uh, two things. Um, one thing I wanted to say, thank you, Wally Lamb, for writing yes. that wonderful letter to Great the current letter. that in the, ma- the space of a couple of paragraphs actually described Yukon and its role in getting rid of the, co- the co-op bookstore at the university. Thank you, Wally. And the other uh, thing I wanted to mention was that we have the April in Paris Film Festival at Cine Studios starting on Sunday, starting with a magnificent film called The Inhuman Woman by Marcel Lervier from the 1920s, um, which has been done uh, uh, incredible restoration. And we have the wonderful Patrick Miller playing live piano along with it. That's on Sunday afternoon at 2.30. That sounds great. Luis, what have you got? Uh, so I have the next week uh, from Thursday through Sunday, the 7th to the 10th at Trinity College, we will have uh, the 10th anniversary edition of the Trinity uh, International yeah. Hip Hop Festival, um, which is a student-led um, uh, effort since 06. Um, it has a variety of activities, lectures, discussion panels, not only performances, but then on um, film screenings, workshops, and on, on uh, Saturday night, it's a show with Rakim, a very famous MC, and a group of MCs. And Friday, there's a dance event, including a b-boy battle. And again, this is a Trinity Hip Hop uh, International Hip Hop Festival, uh, Thursday through Sunday, next week, the 7th to the 10th. And for more information, just visit their uh, Facebook page. Just type Trinity Hip Hop. All right. You can't get tickets to Hamilton very easily, and Broadway tickets are very expensive. I'm a big fan of uh, downtown theater in New York. I love the Barrow Street Theater. I love New York Theater Workshop. I was at both of them last Saturday at New York Theater Workshop Red Speedo, which is kind of a it's – a, it's sort of about doping and cheating in, in this, among swimmers in the Olympics. It's like David Mamet with chlorine. Uh, I recommend it. Uh, I saw The Effect uh, at uh, Barrow Street, which is uh, about people in a kind of a Prozac test trial. They're both worth seeing and a lot cheaper than what you'd see on Broadway. I also do want to encourage you to come out on Wednesday night to Watkinson School this coming Wednesday. We're going to have a conversation about public investment in sports, whether it's the Whalers or the New England Patriots or the Hartford Yard Goats. What do we get for our public investment? When is it worth it? What does it do for cities? How much of a population's capital should go in to perking up its uh, civic life by investing in sports? We have great panelists. I mean, we have like the ideal perfect panel that I wanted to get. So uh, it's at 7 o'clock. You can even come to a dinner beforehand. You have to tell Watkinson that you're coming. Go to Watkinson.org, look for the freshly squeezed logo, and find out more. I would have said that one. Avon, Farmington. Yeah, 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 yeah. This Hamilton casting call business is so frustrating. It also may explain why I didn't get a callback for the role of Suge Knight in Straight Outta Compton.